I'm Kate, and welcome to the Picture House Podcast, where we discuss the architecture, design, and history of America's early cinemas. We hope that telling the stories of these places and the people associated with them will help you explore their place in our collective memory and our communities today. This is the third episode in our series on all things Picture Palace. And you can't talk about Picture Palaces without talking about John Everson. Everson was the originator and pretty much became the undisputed master of the atmospheric theater. Ultimately, roughly 100 atmospherics would come out of Everson's firm, and at the end of his life, he would be credited with designing more than 500 theaters. The title of our episode today, Practical Plans for Pretty Playhouses, comes from Everson himself. But whether they were commissions for major motion picture players like Paramount, Lowe's, and Warner's, or small companies, I don't think any of Eberson's work could be considered just a pretty playhouse. Suffice it to say, there's enough Eberson to talk about for a month of Sundays. But we'll try to give you a well-rounded picture of him while homing in on some of the best of his best. John Adolph Emil Eberson was born on January 2nd, 1875, in what was then Austria-Hungary, now the Ukraine. He attended school in Dresden and then studied electrical engineering at the University of Vienna. He immigrated to the U.S. in 1901, settling in a section of St. Louis that was solidly Austrian and German. He started working for an electrical contractor, and presumably through this position he became acquainted with Johnson Realty and Construction Company. Eberson began working with the company, which specialized in stage theater design and construction. At some point in his time with Johnson Realty and Construction, Eberson moved beyond just the electrical to stage design and painting, and then designing the whole building, as evidenced by the Opera House John moniker he was given while with them. The theater he's officially first credited with, the Jewel in Hamilton, Ohio, which is no longer standing, was a conversion of an antebellum building into a 350-seat Nickelodeon. It opened on May 1, 1909, and led to additional projects for Eberson in Hamilton. The following year, he relocated his family, which by then included his wife Beatrice and three children, Drew, Laura, and Elsa, to Chicago. While in the Windy City, Eberson continued to win theater design work, and he became connected with the Interstate Amusement Company, which operated theaters, first vaudeville and then movies, in Texas. Eberson's relationship with Interstate would prove crucial to his growth as an architect. For the company, Eberson designed the Fort Worth Majestic in 1911 and the classical revival Austin Majestic in 1915. The Fort Worth Majestic is no longer standing, while the Austin one is. Although neither of these theaters were particularly remarkable, architecturally speaking, they were stepping stones in Eberson's journey to more sophisticated work. Another important evolution in his style was realized with the completion of the Dallas Majestic. Opened on April 11, 1921, it was built as the flagship of the interstate theater chain. Its 20th century interpretation of the Renaissance Revival style was suitably ornate and expressive of the prominence the Majestic wished to suggest. Everson carried a Roman garden theme throughout the design of the theater, a precursor to the elaborate outdoor 
nighttime fantasies that would become the center of his atmospheric theaters. The Indiana Theater in Terre Haute followed hot on the heels of Dallas's Majestic. Opened in January of 1922, the theater was constructed by the John A. Schumacher Company of Indianapolis with a price tag of around a million dollars. Here, Eberson went with a Spanish Baroque design meant to take the patrons through the splendor of a day. The rotunda evokes dawn, the lobby daytime, complete with a fountain and caryatids, and the auditorium an exotic night in a Spanish courtyard. The Indiana was yet another big step toward the total atmospheric. There would be one more theater that would have Everson testing the waters before he went full-bore atmospheric. With Wichita's Orpheum, he sought to create an atmosphere which surrounds the audience with an effect of coolness and repose, of depth and distance. He would treat the interior as an exterior and devise a space like a Spanish garden or court made festive by music and torchlight. The exterior effect was largely achieved by a night sky projection design. Using a remote control board, a theater electrician put blue, amber, and pink colors in the sky scene on the auditorium ceiling and made the stars twinkle. The auditorium's sidewalls feature faux building exterior details, including tile roofs and grills. More elements that contribute to the Spanish courtyard atmosphere include decorative plasterwork urns and wall niches, and wooden latticework. The Orpheum opened on September 4, 1922, and was said to be one of the most beautiful, delightful, and comfortable playhouses in the United States. So beautiful is it that you instantly feel a peace steal over your senses, and you feel that here in this environment all your troubles, all your trials, and all your worries have ceased to be. By that account, Eberson certainly succeeded in giving theater patrons a place where they could experience coolness and repose. Even though the Orpheum isn't generally acknowledged as Eberson's first true atmospheric, it was really, really close. The theater that is generally considered to be Eberson's first fully realized atmospheric theater was the Majestic in Houston. It opened in January 1923 with speeches by the mayor and other eminent men and women. While anyone could have built an auditorium and a stage, the Majestic's owners wanted it to become more of a Houston institution than ever before, a social and cultural life of the city. John Eberson would help them achieve this. According to Ben Hall, with the movie palace barely a decade old, Everson had been growing tired of the sameness of their stuffy, academic interiors and set about to bring a breath of fresh air into the whole overstuffed concept of theater design. To do this, he went inside out and overseas. The Houston Majestic was Italy all over. Its neoclassical brick facade evoked images of Rome, and the auditorium was a Roman garden. As described by author Scott Hoffman, it had asymmetrical walls with building facades of different types and dimensions. Windows and balconies were lighted from inside to mimic life indoors. Roofs were topped with simulated tiles. Artificial vines and trees were placed realistically. Even papier-mâché doves were suspended to appear as if they were in flight. The ceiling was painted a dark blue to resemble a nighttime sky, and was banked with blue lights to create the glow of a twilight horizon. Openings were placed strategically in the ceiling 
and outfitted with twinkling lights to resemble stars. Moving clouds were projected on the ceiling. Before a performance, orange lights along the ceiling were increased and then dimmed to simulate a sunset. Final touches included a recording of nighttime noises and a rising moon. Color was of paramount importance to Everson. He believed that the very nature of the pastel coloring executed in hundreds of desired shades and colors lends itself so well to the imagination of the average person, and as we linger and look about, our fancy is free to conjure endless tales of romance. He avoided reds, golds, and purples, opting instead for browns, grays, oranges, greens, and blues. The blue for what would become his signature twilight sky was, in his opinion, healing and hopeful. Of the tone he achieved, he wrote, It releases the nerve tension of the audience, refreshes the eyes, makes one feel that one can breathe, and it has 101 beneficial effects on the mind and nerves. Everson coupled his decorative touches with practicality. While theater floor plans had typically been rectangular up to that time, Everson went with a square plan. Hoffman notes that the balcony was deep, extending over half of the orchestra-level seats. This allowed each seat to have a maximum focal line for both the stage and the surrounding walls. And as we just noted, Everson broke from the traditional symmetrical nature of theater auditoriums. Instead of identical walls flanking the stage and screen, one wall might have Roman palace theater grills, while the other had the effects and embellishments of an Italian terrace. Why were these pragmatic design elements important? Because, funnily enough, they enhanced the fantasy of the whole place. Everson's design for the Houston Majestic, done to such minutia of detail, culminated in the complete creation of an experience that totally enveloped moviegoers. Moving pictures, objects of fantasy, allure, and fascination, could finally be watched in a building that matched the movies frame for frame in exoticism and intrigue. And the Houston Majestic was just the beginning of Eberson's atmospheric stars and clouds style. The advent of the atmospheric was, in Eberson's own words, a form and style that represented something new, but which was imbued with character and individuality. At the same time, he was modest, saying that his atmospheric design was a dignified imitation, an example of nature-glorifying classic architecture. But the success of his designs couldn't be denied. Even he noted that few innovations in the theatrical business have taken root as quickly as the atmospheric theater. And he wasn't wrong. After the Majestic in Houston, atmospherics were all the rage. Eberson himself would design more than a hundred of them over the course of his career, most of them during the late 1920s. The relocation of his firm's offices from Chicago to New York in 1926 could be seen as evidence of his success in this arena. Other movie palace architects, like Thomas Lamb and Rap and Rap, who we'll get to next time, would go atmospheric from time to time at client request. And plenty of atmospherics were designed by other architects in the 20s. The style even went international. Numerous theaters in Europe, Canada, Mexico, Australia, and New Zealand, and I'm sure elsewhere, were designed and built in the atmospheric style. But back to our guy. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we could talk forever 
about Ebers and movie palaces. How about we highlight just a few of his late 20s atmospherics? Let's start with a couple Sunshine State theaters that might be called siblings for their close similarities. The Olympia Theater in Miami and the Tampa Theater in Tampa. Construction on the Olympia began in May of 1925, and the theater opened in February of 1926. At a cost of roughly $1.5 million, the theater originally seated around 2,100 people. George Fuller and company carried out Eberson's designs, with Robert E. Hall of New York as associate engineer. As noted in the National Register nomination for the Olympia, the auditorium itself was designed to create the illusion of an amphitheater set in a Spanish garden and enclosed on three sides by the walls of an imposing villa. The ceiling, painted dark blue, duplicates the Florida sky with rolling clouds and twinkling lights to suggest stars. The Olympia bore a striking resemblance to Eberson's other Florida atmospheric, the Tampa. Opened on October 15, 1926, the Tampa was smaller and slightly less ornate than the Olympia, but no less magnificent. Each of the theater's 1,600 seats was filled on an opening night that saw speeches from the state's governor and the city's mayor. At the Tampa, Florida fauna inspired Eberson, who saw the value of putting nature to work and so borrowed the color and design found in the state's flowers and trees. The Tampa Auditorium echoes the Olympic, with a very intense and rich series of architectural studies of the Spanish Renaissance, placing the viewer in an imaginary garden of an idealized Spanish villa. The ceiling, painted dark blue with fleecy white clouds, accentuates the sensation of being outdoors. Small twinkling lights placed behind holes in the ceiling give the illusion of stars. Both of these theaters survive today and are listed on the National Register of Historic Places. In the examples we've discussed so far, Eberson employed Italian and Spanish styles to excellent effect, and those seem to have been his go-tos for much of his career. But Mediterranean Europe wasn't his only source of inspiration. For 1927's Avalon Theater in Chicago, Eberson leaned on Middle Eastern motifs. His Moorish revival design was supposedly inspired by an antique Persian incense burner. The building's exterior features a colorful minaret, Moorish dome, OG arches, and ornate, intricate patterns. Once inside, moviegoers found themselves in a lobby that's been described as resplendent with colored tile under a ceiling that resembles a Persian rug, or maybe a flying carpet, complete with glittering gemstones. Once in the auditorium, those filling the 2,500 seats found themselves in the middle of an outdoor bazaar at night, underneath Eberson's signature sky with twinkling stars. A mock tent even extends over the stage. One wall of the theater was designed as a garden, complete with a reflecting pool and stuffed flamingos, while the other was like the skyline of an ancient Middle Eastern city. OG arches, minarets, and Moorish domes transported moviegoers to exotic lands. Opened in August of 1927, the Avalon showed movies until the 1970s. It had a life as a church for a while and saw some intermittent use after that, but it's been mostly vacant since the early 2000s. It continues to be a focus of preservation and reuse efforts today. There would be plenty more Eberson atmospherics with, to quote the architect himself, 
magnificent amphitheaters under a glorious moonlit sky, an Italian garden, a Persian court, a Spanish patio, or a mystic Egyptian temple yard, where friendly stars twinkled and wisps of cloud drifted. Another majestic would go up in Texas in 1929, a Spanish revival in San Antonio that is not only on the National Register, but is also a National Historic Landmark. The Lowe's Theater in Akron, also from 1929, is an Italian Renaissance revival that's also on the National Register. Eberson also had plenty of repeat clients. For young amusement, he designed three wonder theaters in Canton and Marion, Ohio, and Gary, Indiana in the late 20s. And in addition to the Lowe's in Akron, he designed theaters for that chain in Richmond, Virginia, as well as two of the wonder theaters in New York. But we'll save those for a future episode in this series. By the end of the 1920s, Eberson had designed more than 100 atmospheric theaters. By his own admission, it wasn't as easy as he made it look. For an atmospheric, the necessary amount of detail work and study to create a consistent atmospheric theater is endless. To make the illusion perfect requires not only a thorough understanding and knowledge of old world architecture, we must also know how to transform and create with modern tools and art craft. To be really successful, and not just an imitator, we must historically, graphically, and architecturally study the periods and old-world localities which are furnishing the theme for our outdoor garden auditoriums. Eberson and the teams he assembled to complete the theaters rose to this challenge, though. Their success was due in large part to skill as sculptors, designers, detailers, decorators, lighting engineers, and connoisseurs of fine furniture, soft fabrics, correct bric-a-brac, and proper furnishings. Their extreme attention to detail created an experience that felt so real, moviegoers really felt they were watching a film outdoors in some romantic European city. Eberson's designs let patrons imagine themselves in exotic locales. Wherever you leave something to your imagination, Eberson said, you automatically and instantaneously create interest. Interestingly, despite all of the delicate detail of an Eberson atmospheric, they were actually cheaper to build than traditional movie palaces of the time, sometimes costing as little as 25% as a standard theater. He chalked this up to less expensive material. Bronze and marble, for instance, were unlikely to be found in one of his atmospherics. At this point, you probably feel pretty familiar with the characteristics of an Eberson atmospheric, but Scott Hoffman so nicely sums up the style that I'll quote him for our final recap. Rather than seating the theater patrons in a box-like, formal setting as passive observers of stage entertainment, Eberson transported them to an exotic European courtyard or garden. A plain cerulean sky replaced the ornate dome. Wispy floating clouds produced by a projector replaced crystal chandeliers and gilt. Trees, plants, vines, and taxidermy birds replaced gold leaf. Arches, trellises, balconies, and plaster statuary replaced marble, painted wood panels, and crystal chandeliers. As the entertainment was about to begin, lighting effects created the illusion of a setting sun, as colors changed from yellow to red to mauve. Small lights, arranged in the ceiling in constellation patterns, twinkled to create a sense of infinite space. Eberson made the theater patron an active, comfortable resident of an imaginary time and place, 
not a passive, aloof occupant of an oppressive, formal space. But just as quickly as Eberson and his atmospheric theaters swept in in 1923, they were swept out again just seven short years later by the onset of the Great Depression. When the money for new theater construction dried up, not even the most affordable atmospheric could be justified. But price wasn't the only factor. Public tastes had changed, too. The movies themselves all but abandoned princes, sheiks, Latin lovers, and remote locales, putting the exotic atmospheric out of tune with the films presented in it. Although Eberson would continue to practice architecture pretty much up until his death in 1954, by 1930 even he seemed to be over his own style. Espousing the virtues of simpler design, he was willing to throw away the garish toga of gold, glitter, and extravagancy, and take the mallet and steel chisel and carve available rock into sturdy form of simple beauty and eternal dependability. And so, by the dawn of the new decade, even the atmospheric was pretty much a thing of the past. Like Thomas Lamb, who we discussed in our last episode, Eberson designed buildings through pretty much every early phase of movie house architecture, from Nickelodeons to picture palaces to Art Deco houses. And he was described by writer Francis Mather as a Michelangelo. Mr. Eberson is at once architect, engineer, interior decorator, and mural painter, using artificial lighting as well as brushes to gain his color effect, and he applies all this knowledge in creating his contribution to the modern theater, the outdoor illusion. Mather really wasn't far off. From a modest apprentice to master architect, John Eberson developed a unique movie palace design, one that, as Scott Hoffman put it, really did create an acre of seats in a garden of dreams. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode, the fourth in our series on movie palaces, when we'll talk about theater owners Balaban and Katz and the theaters that the architectural firm of Rap and Rap created for them in Chicago. Until then, may your seats be ever in the center 